Hello, college football fans, and welcome to episode 149 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined, as always, by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, Husker fans and college football fans. Yes. Long time no talk, right? <laughs> That's right. We last came to you guys in April after the Nebraska spring game, so there's been quite a few developments in the world of both Nebraska football and the wider college football landscape, so we'll begin to all of that today. Very exciting stuff. Yes, it has been a, a crazy off season for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and for those who may be listening to us for the first time, we are a father-son duo here to talk about our favorite team, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, but also to talk about uh, college football by college football fans for college football fans. So we'll begin into some topics about like the Big Tens and SEC's uh, new schedules for their expanded conferences, um, some NIL talk, uh, sports debt. Uh, the Pac-12, all sorts of fun stuff. Yes, there's there's lots of uh, yeah, not off the field type if, issues that are going on, and and in fact, I'm sure as we speak here in early June or mid June, I guess it is, uh, there is a lot that's still going to unfold between now and say the first uh, football being kicked off in the fall. That's true. That's true. Uh, but before we get into all that, we're going to crack open our beverages as is tradition. Why don't you start us off, Dad? All right. I, I, I you know, I, I'm almost feeling embarrassed as I spoke with you earlier that, you know, here it is mid-June and, and I have not mentioned Labatt Blue on the podcast for quite some time. And this is my favorite beer uh, in my summer times here in northern Michigan uh, as far as, the, the you know, the traditional uh, manufactured beers, not a microbrew or anything, but uh, love the Labatt Blue, Labatt Blue <laughs> from the great north. Uh, of us, the Canadian beer. Uh, so I'm really excited to enjoy one of these, which I haven't had nearly enough of so far. All right. And then I've got a uh, Golden Road Brewing Mango Cart, which I've come to enjoy. Oh, your mother and sister are both big fans of the Mango Cart. Okay. Well, I am too. Yeah. So we can. There you go. All tag team together. <laughs> there you go. All right. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Mm. Um, I may I may need two of these tonight. <laughs> it's one of those kind of nights, huh? It is one of those kind of days. All right. Yes. Um, well, as I mentioned, our previous podcast was just after the Nebraska spring game. And on that, we discussed how uh, there were going to be a lot of transfers after we recorded the podcast because we knew we were over the scholarship limit. And that traditionally happens after your spring game and everything else. Um we actually had a specific discussion about the quarterbacks because, of course, at the time we had six scholarship quarterbacks and we knew that was too many and that someone was going to leave. So interesting, Dad, you said that Casey was going to stay. Casey Thompson was going to stay because he was uh, had already graduated and was like working on his next degree and stuff. But that uh, Torres and Smothers could go. And I went ahead and predicted that uh, Harburg might be the one to go if we if the coaches tried to put him in a more of a running back position instead of quarterback. Uh, and in the end, uh, Casey, Torres, and Smothers ended up leaving, which I think was a surprise to many Nebraska fans. Um, then all of a sudden we went from having too many quarterbacks to back to having almost too few or like a bit of a, you know, a more thin right. room. Well you know, when you think about it, we were, I was two for three, right? A two of the three I, <laughs> I, I accurately projected. And, you know, um, you, you just didn't know how, how Casey was going to approach this final season of eligibility that he had. And it, and it's obvious now in hindsight, now that he has gone into the portal and then ultimately chosen FAU as his destination and, and uh, reunited with a, a coach he was familiar with from his earlier stop down in Texas. Um, so he, he's kind of reuniting with a, uh, a coach, a head coach that he's familiar with, but um, the bottom line is, is that he knows he's going to be in a, an offensive system that is very familiar for him. Right. And it's going to, uh, give him a, a, a pretty darn good chance to get lots of snaps so that he can demonstrate his ability in this final season of eligibility at Nebraska. It was clear that although he was in a good position, 
he was also very much in a competition. He was going to have to compete in the fall for a starting job. And because he was not able to participate at all during, during uh, spring um, in terms of, uh, you know, throwing the football, uh, actually playing and, and demonstrating his skill set, he was starting from kind of behind the eight ball. He was going to be the second quarterback to take snaps start of, at the start of uh, fall camp, right? So if you're in his situation, you can, you can kind of see why he chose to do that. Um, that is the new reality that we live in, in this NIL world. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think he, he did a great job. I don't question his heart. I don't question his commitment to Nebraska or anything like that. And in fact, he's, he's still coaching in Nebraska. He committed to do some youth football camps in Nebraska, and he's still coming back to do that, even though he's already moved down to Florida uh, to his FAU campus. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that, that's definitely a good sign. And, of course, both he and Logan were coming back from injuries, which is the whole reason why they weren't involved in spring practice. So we don't know, you know, how have those injuries affected them? Was the recovery good, et cetera, et cetera? So those could all play into it as well. But the Casey announcement definitely did surprise me because um, I was looking forward to, you know, us having a real quarterback battle between him and Jeff Sims, kind of the new guy coming in, and that – Whichever of them won out, we would at least have a very good uh, backup quarterback, right, that we could rely on if the other one, you right. know, was having a rough day. Now we're kind of back in the situation where we'll have hopefully a good starting quarterback. You know, Jeff Sims impressed overall in the spring game, but behind him, I'm not so confident. Right. Yeah. The, the, you know, like you say, I, I, I thought we were going to go into the season. I, I genuinely thought that it was going to be a heck of a, a battle. Uh, for who would get the start, but the the idea that you would have a seasoned, mature, experienced backup was a luxury that we were going to be able to enjoy this year, and now that's gone. Yeah, well, it's like you say, is a more rare thing uh, in this you know new world of college football. Unless you're, I guess, you know Alabama, right? One of like the big big schools, right? The the schools that are at the at the at the top right now that are able to just recruit on top of recruit on top of recruit they can do that but most teams and even them even the alabamas of the world the the georgias of the world they're seeing departures too because even even their quarterbacks that you know if you're a good quarterback you you that's a very unique position it's one where usually there is a name starter and, and that starter is going to get almost all the snaps unless they get hurt and so if you're a very very talented player and you lose in that 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 competition you're ready to move on right quick right and i get it if if you lose the competition but in this case casey didn't even try to fight it really right right well again again he he was up against the clock right this is absolutely positively his last year his last chance to demonstrate and put film uh on you know together uh for uh professional teams to view to see what he can do and frankly, since he's going to a place that, of a, that's a familiar offense, he's not going to have to learn so much new stuff. He's going to have to re-educate himself on something he already knows. And so it's actually probably a pretty good fit for him. Right. Yep. Well, obviously, we wish him all the best here from Nebraska. You know, uh, we appreciated all the work that he did for us last year. Um, and I hope he has success at FAU. I agree. In terms of other transfers, um, some of the more prominent ones were uh, A.J. Allen, uh, Lante Brown, Braxton Clark, Noah Pola Gates, and Stephen Wynn Jr. Um, there were others, but those were some of the bigger names I, I noticed. Right. Out of that list, you just mentioned that the only two that I that really strike me as, you know, ones that I would have hoped didn't happen. And, you know, we did predict, Alex, in our last podcast that we knew that we were about 10 over on our scholarship limit based on what we knew about who had scholarships and who didn't. And of course there's always a little bit of gray, gray area there, but it was, it was eight to 10 for sure uh, that we had to get rid of uh, to get bound to the 85. And uh, you knew that, that at least a few of those two or three of them were going to be people you didn't want to leave, but were going to choose to leave. And then the rest of them were going to be people that probably were on that list that we thought was likely. And that's kind of how it played out, you know? Uh, and, and I would say that Stephen Wynn and, um, and then uh, Anthony Allen 
were two people who really were poised to to play significant minutes, but unlikely to be starters based on where they found themselves in the um, uh, depth chart following spring practice. And 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 with Stephen Wynn, again, you're talking about a guy who's in his last year of eligibility, so you understand that a little bit in terms of his movement. Um, now the younger guy, Allen, the running back, you know, he was one of those kids that had flashed, uh, but then was coming off an injury again. So he he hardly played in the spring. So I'm a little disappointed slash surprised that he chose to move on, other than the fact that he didn't mesh as well with the coaching staff as uh, as maybe he did with the previous staff. They were the ones who had recruited him, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think he just recognized that he did not feel the fit that he had had before. And so he was destined to leave, even though he's a very talented player and probably will go on to have a pretty good career. Right. And this was uh, not something released to the public by the coaches, but by some media who was at a practice or something. But you'll, you'll recall there was a video of AJ Allen going through drills with the coach, you know, talking him through it. Uh, and the coach was basically telling him to go harder, go faster. And he just wasn't doing it and basically ignored the coach. And it, it was not a good look. Um, so it, it seems like his commitment, like you say, his buy-in definitely wasn't all there. Right. Right. I think, I think that th- that video kind of indicated that there was a disconnect and that, so it, it was not a surprise that he left if you knew that that was where his head was at. Um, and you know, that's something, again, it's another new reality that we have to deal with is that in the past and, and, and it's, it's amazing. If you listen to, um, players from the bygone years, from the eighties and nineties and two thousands that get interviewed on, um, various programs, they will talk almost every single one of them, even if they became superstars, every single one of them will talk about, there was a moment when they were freshman or sophomore where they were thinking, God, this is just too big a hill to climb. You know, I'm sixth on the depth chart. I'm whatever. I'm seventh on the depth chart. I'm never going to play. This is a bunch of crap. My running backs coach or my, my, my position coach doesn't like me. And, and, uh, you know, and they just want to pack it in and give up or transfer or whatever. And, uh, but you know, so many of them, they stuck it out and eventually found their footing you know, the, the game slowed down from whatever, however you want to describe it. And then boom, they became successful. Um, and now I think in many cases, not all, but in many cases now, those kids aren't going to stick around for that. Right. They're going to, they're going to leave and hop to another school in the hopes of the immediate playing time, the, the new greener grass, whatever. And hopefully some of them will then flourish in those situations but I, I, I'm going to be very curious to see what the stats are 10 years down the road when we have 10 years of data uh, and we see how many people actually transferred and then what their level of success was at their new schools. Uh, and you're going to, I think we're going to find out that there's probably less than a third that actually transfer and end up having highly successful situations in their new environment. Um, and there will be lots of questions about if they had stayed, what if? In addition to all the transfers, obviously, we've also had uh, new recruits, you know, committing to the program over time. Um, I've seen, you know, the updates in regards to that. Nobody that seems to like jump off the page, you know, but some solid people. Um, And of course, um, Dylan Riola, who we've discussed previously on the podcast, was a uh, the number one player for next season's recruiting class and somebody who we were definitely pursuing uh, announced his commitment to Georgia, uh, which we perceived to be his first choice. So it wasn't exactly a surprise, uh, though still a little disappointing. Yeah, it's disappointing because he's a legacy. His father obviously has a uh, a, a big uh, spot in his heart for the Cornhuskers. And I think he would have loved to have seen his son follow in his footsteps. But at the same time, I think as, as most good fathers do, he was there to advise, but ultimately he left it to his son to make his own choice about the path that he wanted to take in life. And, and really when you, when you get down to the brass tacks, yes, he could have come and, and been viewed as the savior of Nebraska football or whatever. But with that comes a lot of pressure and uh, a, a lot of, uh, you know, a potential downside risks where 
where he's going now, he's going into a program that's already at that pinnacle that j- just needs to maintain it. And he knows he's going to be surrounded by the best of the best because of the way that that the the way that Georgia recruits. So he was absolutely right in his you know discernment and ultimately making the decision that okay, if I go to Georgia, these opportunities are going to be presented to me. And if it doesn't happen, you know, one or two years down the lo- road with the new um, transfer portal era. You know, he could very well make a decision two years from now to transfer and go somewhere else, whether that ends up ultimately being a, a, like to USC, which was also one of his finalists, or to him uh, ultimately coming back to Nebraska at that point, which right. is a possibility. Yep, certainly is a possibility. Um, from those new commits we've got, was there anybody of significance you wanted to highlight? you're you're catching me without i gotta pull up the right the right thing but it's uh there's a buford and he his brother is already on the on the team and now he committed he's a four-star uh defensive back out of texas and i think the thing i would want to emphasize about our recruits we've only got eight for this next recruiting class that have committed at this point um and and it's not a highly regarded group collectively nationally but I, but I like what, what Coach is doing. I think he's going after a lot of the right people. He was able to swing a guy that was committed to a, another uh, Heartland school, Missouri, uh, at quarterback. Once it was clear that Dylan was off the board and out of the picture, uh, effectively a, a guy who is a local product, who was from Nebraska, who, who would have been our, one of our top candidates in a year that Dylan wasn't around. Uh, because of his, you know, uh, Nebraska, uh, being a Nebraska native and, uh, he's a pretty darn good player, good enough that he was invited to be uh, a part of the elite 11, uh, uh, quarterback camp that goes on. It's in fact, it's going on right about now. Um, so th- it's not like he's chopped liver. He's, he's not Dylan Riala in terms of the rankings, but he's very talented player and he's from, from Nebraska. So we were able to kind of um, you know, have our cake and eat it too. And that we were able to pursue Dylan until it was very clear that he was not coming to Nebraska. And then we were able to shift gears and we still got, you know, the top quarterback from the state of Nebraska that we would have gone after in any other year. So that's, that's, that's really good. And, and the Buford kid is, uh, I think the example or the, uh, demonstration of our commitment to Texas uh, uh, out of the eight players that we have committed at this point, maybe it's nine now, um, four of them are from the state of Texas. And really, Texas recruiting has been somewhat dormant for us pretty much since we left the Big 12 for the Big 10 back in the early 2010s era. Uh, when we did that transition, one of the things we gave up, quote, quote, was our pipeline to Texas. And, uh, and we started trying to recruit more in the big 10 footprint and things like that. Um, I think with the, all the connections that this staff has with the state of Texas, it's a natural fit for them to go after Texas talent. And it seems like we're having some pretty good success doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is good news to hear. Um, And one other cool Nebraska piece of news that's uh, breaking just today is that uh, Jordan Larson was announced as a new assistant volleyball coach uh, for that team. And I know she was a superstar back in her uh, playing days with our team at Nebraska and has gone on to do really well professionally and at the Olympics and all that stuff. So definitely an exciting hire for that sport. Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, it's been quite interesting to watch the roller coaster that she's had to ride these last few years with, you know, winning the gold medal and being the captain of the U S Olympic team. Uh, she's just a phenomenal player really viewed by many to be the, one of the best players of all time, uh, the U S best U S volleyball players of all time. Um, and, uh, and has done it with just a, a tremendous work ethic, uh, obviously talented, but, but a combination of that with great work ethic that has allowed her to do that. And, uh, she is a classic John cook, uh, trainee, if you will, in that her strengths are that she's an incredible all-around player, great defensive skills, which is always the hallmark of John's teams, 
And so for him to be able to, you know, uh, get, get a commitment from her uh, as the NCAA expands um, volleyball coaching staff from two to three, uh, just this year, there was a change that allowed uh, volleyball to have a third paid assistant. And, uh, and that opened the door for us to get Jordan without having to shove somebody else out, right. Or have somebody shuffled out. Um, and so we've got what will be an incredible um, uh, recruit message, if you will, for, for her to be able to go out and recruit on behalf of Nebraska. So it's an, another great example of John being very forward thinking in his approach to the game. Mm-hmm. Very true. Very true. So now we're going to move on to some more uh, conference wide talk um, because uh, one of the big announcements was that the big 10 announced their new plan for schedules for the upcoming seasons um, with USC and UCLA added and how they were going to adjust for that. Um, and they have such a uh, great name for it, the Flex Protect Plus Scheduling Model. <laughs> Very uh, corporate, if you ask me. Um, uh, absolutely. I, I hate that name. <laughs> well, I know you do. Um, but the gist of it is that uh, we're getting rid of divisions and switching to a, a system where um, you basically have kind of like three teams that you're grouped with for at least a two-year period to play uh, a away game and a home game uh, with some of those being uh, permanent opponents, right? Like Ohio state and Michigan, us in Iowa, you know, preserve certain rivalries. Um, and the idea is that everybody will play everyone else twice within a four year period. So you're going to be switching amongst the various uh, schools and your only permanent opponents will be those ones that are like designated as your rivals. Otherwise it's going to be switching all up. Um, as time goes on. So uh, it's definitely an interesting idea. What was your first reaction when you saw it? I like the aspect of, uh, I mean, I, I am I'm accepting of the aspect that there are not divisions. Uh, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a great idea or not. In a big league like this, I think there's a pretty, there's still a pretty strong argument that if you do it right and you, and you balance that strength a little better than they did with East West when they did it just purely on geography. Um, you can develop, uh, you know, a situation where there was some legitimate equality in the competition in each of the two divisions. Right. Uh, and, um, and that gives you the ability to have more of a round Robin um, structure and a true championship type competition. So with that being said, you know, I wish that that might've, been able to, to happen, but it was clear divisions were done quite a while ago. Right. And, uh, the, this whole flex plus thing I think is a hodgepodge and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years. Uh, as an example, you know, there are teams like, uh, Nebraska who has only one designated rival, one designated partner, if you will. And that's Iowa where Iowa, on the other hand, has three that are designated rivals, which means that they're going to play each other supposedly every year. Well, it's going to make it uh, particularly hard for Iowa to, to work around that schedule, right? Michigan's got two. Ohio State only has one. Penn State has zero. Right. Um, so they're the only one that has no designated rival, which I find kind of crazy. I would have thought they would have tried to preserve the Penn State, Michigan State thing because they've been trying to establish that that competition as a as a as a marquee matchup. You know, the two major land grant universities of the you know upper north uh, upper uh, Midwest, but it just never took, right? So they decided at this point that it wasn't worth salvaging. But but it so that un- inequality of some teams having three, some two, and some one protected rival is going to be quite interesting as you play it out. Because if you look at an Iowa, okay, you know, if you look at the overall list of schools in the Big Ten with USC and UCLA being added here, I mean, to have the the opportunity to play Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Nebraska uh, every year for Iowa actually benefits them in 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 the long run because it's likely means they're going to play ohio state michigan usc and ucla less 
uh, right. um, than maybe some other schools might. That's true. Yeah, it, it is interesting, you know. Obviously, certain rivalries you could predict, right? Like uh, Ohio State and Michigan, Michigan and Michigan State, you know, things like that. Um, right. Indiana, Purdue. Yeah. Right. But yeah, then there are some others that, uh, you know, maybe are a little more manufactured, you know, like uh, Wisconsin. They have both Iowa and uh, Minnesota uh, established as their rivalries. Right. So, it, it, yeah, that, that unevenness. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. But I, I like the fact that, that they have tried to set up an, uh, an established plan where if we don't have any other changes to our, our roster of uh, Big Ten universities, that we would, in fact, over a four-year period, play every single one of our, our uh, conference mates at least uh, once um, within the four-year period and and all of them are going to be uh, both home and away. Yeah, no, I, and I like that too. And, you know, I think the Big Ten, since it's kind of an experimental thing, right, this is different from the standard divisions, I think they'll be open to adjusting it in, say, four years if there turn out to be problems with it, right? Um, I agree. Well, and I, and I really do think it might be somewhat temporary anyway because, you know, there's certainly a lot of buzz suggesting that we might not be done with expansion. <laughs> That's true. Well, yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, focusing on the Nebraska side of things, um, one of the keys of this whole negotiation was that uh, the Big Ten kept to the nine conference games. Um, so we're sticking with that. Uh, so if you look at Nebraska's 2024 schedule, uh, it doesn't look too bad. You know, some of our tougher games are uh, Wisconsin, uh, UCLA, Michigan State, Penn State. So definitely some difficult competition in there, um, but it's uh, it seems much easier when you compare it to the 2025 schedule uh, when yes. some of our other games are uh, Michigan, uh, UCLA, Ohio State, USC. <laughs> you know, we've got a lot of the, the big boys that year. Right. There, there's no other school. None. <laughs> out, of the, out of the, you know, 16 teams in the Big Ten that's going to have to play those four schools all in the same year, except Nebraska in 2025. We're the only school in these two years that draws the, 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 the short straw, so to speak, where we have to play USC, Michigan, and Ohio State, as well as UCLA, all in the same year. No one else does that. So another example of them uh, looking at it from the standpoint of, uh, TV revenues and maximizing TV revenues and basically taking advantage of the fact that they know Nebraska continues, even though we have not done well on the field with wins and losses, we continue to be a fan base that supports our team, both in terms of physical attendance, as well as eyeballs uh, on the TV sets. Um, and so it, it's, it's logical when you're making those kinds of scheduling decisions that you do that. Yeah. And uh, as a result of this whole, you know, swapping through the teams every four years, uh, it means that probably, you know, if if the schedule remains, our 2026, say, might be easier, right? Because we'll have some of those teams right. off the schedule guaranteed. Um, and from my perspective, just selfishly, um, I am definitely excited to see us playing uh, in Los Angeles, you know, like against UCLA and against USC, you know, in the upcoming years since I'm out right. here currently. So uh, we'll definitely have to arrange something for that. Yes, I'm I'm looking forward to that. I would love to go to the Rose Bowl again and watch another UCLA Nebraska game or to go down to uh, to um, um, the Coliseum and watch USC. So. Those are some cool opportunities that all Big Ten schools are going to are going to have. So overall, I, I get what they were trying to accomplish. I understand the compromises that they were up against. I'm shocked, actually, that they didn't make more of the permanent. Uh, the rivalry games. Rivalry games. Like they're giving up some trophy games, right? Like Michigan, Minnesota, right, is a, is a trophy game. The uh, I don't know if it's a. Paul Bunyan acts or there, there's some kind of, you know, you know, trophy games that are n no longer going to be played every year like they were before. Right. And so some of those 
kind of old rivalries are going to become uh, on again, off again type things. And I'm okay with Nebraska only getting Iowa, right? I mean, it would have been nice to have get, got, uh, I thought we were going to end up with three. I really thought they were going to come up with a structure that where each team had three, uh, you know, uh, committed rivals or whatever. And I thought we would end up with like Iowa, Wisconsin, and UCLA or something like that. But, but we ended up with just Iowa. Right. Yeah. And, uh, our pairing for the next two years is, uh, Iowa, uh, Minnesota and UCLA. So Minnesota and UCLA are the additions. Iowa's the permanent one. Um, I do find it kind of funny. Like we mentioned that, uh, apparently Iowa is so historically steeped in tradition that they have three rivalry games while Penn state apparently has nothing that, uh, rises to that level is <laughs> funny to me. Well, uh, you know, I, and I'm sure part of that is how hard certain schools fought for those rivalries. And I think, I think there was a little bit of gamesmanship going on there. Uh, uh, There's no doubt in my mind that because Iowa was able to secure their arrangement with three, that's going to help them in terms of their win loss record within the big 10. Now, is it going to help them uh, win big 10 championships? No, not necessarily, but it's going to help them stay away from, maybe having devastatingly bad seasons. But you're forgetting that uh, Nebraska is going to rise with Matt Rule and become a power again, and they'll regret the fact that they have to play us every year. (laughs) That's my hope. Absolutely. (laughs) We are in a one-game winning streak against them, and let's hope we can get it to seven or eight like they had against us. So Yeah. Um, one interesting thing is I saw a, uh, short comment from Trev Alberts, uh, Nebraska's, uh, athletic director where he was asked about the schedules and stuff. And he mentioned the possibility of, uh, lightening our non-conference load. In, in other words, making the non-conference a bit easier because, uh, we're sticking with the nine conference games and we have USC and UCLA added into this, uh, schedule, you know, which, uh, USC in particular, right. Is a definite powerhouse team that you have to consider every year you're playing oh, yeah. them well and, and and ucla now that they're going to be part of the big 10 i think both of those schools are going to get another boost uh from a recruiting standpoint so their talent level's not going down anytime soon well not to mention ucla has chip kelly there right so right exactly he, we know he's a good coach um so you know he didn't commit to anything but he mentioned as a possibility and given what the sec has done right you know putting a lot of patty cake teams in their non-conference, uh, but still being regarded as typically the strongest conference. Um, I think he's probably looking into that playbook a little bit. Yeah, but uh, that's apples and oranges. And and I don't know if we want to get into that right now, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, that is going to be my rant here on the podcast today. Um uh, is now the time we want to do that, or do you want to talk further about nope. this particular subject of the Big Ten schedules? We can do that. Um, the SEC is actually going to announce their uh, 2024 schedule uh, tomorrow from when we're recording this, so that's not public yet. Um, but they have decided that they're going to stick with the eight conference games uh, schedule that they have been doing so far. Um, it was not a unanimous decision. Apparently, five different teams amongst the 16 uh, voted to uh, go to nine, and I should say 14, because I believe both Texas and Oklahoma couldn't vote in that particular discussion since they were new. Um, So it's not like it was unanimous, but the majority rule said that they're sticking with eight conference games, which uh, if I was in the SEC, if I was an SEC fan, I think that's smart for them competitively because it's clearly worked, you know, so far. So why uh, stop what's been working, right? I totally agree, and and it, and I where my rant or my anger comes from is I don't understand why the Big Ten didn't follow suit, or at least before they made a commitment to nine, uh, that they didn't push harder for the SEC to step up and match, uh, because this is this is a huge deal. It's been a huge deal for the last decade, and if you want to know why the SEC has has clearly edged ahead of the Big Ten in terms of not only talent acquisition through recruiting, but also in terms of its prestige nationally. There are a number of reasons for that. The television contracts that we have and, and that they have, even though the Big Ten's 
pays more money to its individual institutions. The fact is, is that we went heavy on internal uh, conference inventory and how we could present that to our our television, our media partners, uh, where the SEC, I think, was more, you know, betting on themselves, so to speak, and uh, investing in the fact that what they did was position themselves to have the best maximum records that they could for their teams. And in so doing, that would bump up their positioning within um, within the bowl alliance structure and which bowls were, you know, the most prominent and things like that. And now that uh, in the, uh, the, uh, the genesis of the 12-team playoff for, for college football, I think it's going to continue to lead to the uh, SEC having at, at least one more team regularly and maybe even more than one more team than even the Big Ten has in that top 12. And, and with the amount of money that each of those games is going to be able to produce and, and be shared within the participants of those, of those events, it is going to end up easily paying for the difference uh, in terms of their in-conference inventory. So going with eight games was the wiser choice. Why the Big Ten didn't do that, especially given the last 10 years where they had 10 years of evidence that clearly pointed to the value that the SEC has been able to gain by having uh, four non-conference games, most of which are guaranteed wins for the majority of those schools so that they had better records, okay? And because of those better records, they had access to better bowls. And because they had better bowls and, and better visibility, that they were perceived as being better than, than they would have otherwise been viewed, which led to better recruiting. So it's a it's a vicious cycle that keeps building on itself, and the and for whatever reason the Big Ten was so focused on trying to you know play each other that they neglected the reality of that situation. Uh, they should have either fought for the SEC to get to nine with them, or they should have fought for the decision makers and 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 the structure within the uh, guidelines for the selection of the top twelve for the college football playoff that the emphasis that was supposed to be there originally about strength of schedule needed to be beefed up substantially so that all these SEC schools who have one more win that Big Ten schools uh, would not be getting the benefit of the doubt, that it has to swing the other way. Right. Does well, that make any sense? Oh, no, it makes sense. And it's what we've talked about on many podcasts in the past. Um, and I will say the nine game structure uh, from a fan's point of view in terms of, you know, uh, interest in games and TV viewership yep. and all those other things. Uh, I think nine games is better. Uh, it's more interesting. Um, but I agree. From the purely competitive, you know, national rankings perspective, eight games is better. Well, eight games is better because the decision makers who were choosing the top four in the previous version of the college football playoff, and that there's going to be a similar structure, it appears, for the new college football playoff that's 12 teams, they did not emphasize conference win-loss records, and they did not recognize the strength of schedule, and the they should have been giving the Big Ten and other conferences that were playing nine-game schedules, they should have been giving those conferences some additional benefit of the doubt over the SEC. They effectively should have, in a subtle way, punished the SEC for choosing to play a less severe schedule. Okay? And and instead, they could not get past the win-loss record thing and allowed the SEC to gain this foothold of dominance. Uh, and, and I know there are other reasons. It's not just this one reason. Uh, you know, the, the, the truth is there's more athletes in the South, East, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not, I don't have my head in the sand. I'm simply telling you that if, if they had established that up front, we'd be in a better place as a sport. And now the Big Ten has put their head in the sand ignored that reality and committed themselves to another God knows how many years 
of being at a disadvantage to the SEC and allowing the SEC to continue to build the separation between those two conferences. Right. Because with the new 12-team playoff system, right, the Big Ten is guaranteed to get their champion in, right? So unlike the old system, you're at least guaranteed to get one in. And I think in a lot of years, the Big Ten will also probably get a second team in. Um, But like you say, there will we'll probably see situations where the sec gets three teams in while the big 10 only gets two. Um, and if that can shows up as a trend, uh, you know, because those lower rankings, right. The say 10 to 12 ranked teams will be even more subjective and there'll be even more arguments for this or that team, uh, than we had before with the four teams. Exactly. And if they're not emphasizing Alex, if they're not emphasizing strength of schedule and the fact that, Hey, they had the the Big Ten teams had to play, you know, a ninth conference game. So there are there are, you know, if you're playing that ninth conference game, there are 16 teams in the conference. There are eight more losses within that are assigned to teams within the league that the SEC doesn't get. Because if you look at the non-conference win loss records, the non on the non-conference weeks for the SEC, the Big Ten, you name the conference. Generally speaking, those win-loss records are astoundingly in favor of the power conferences. So on any given week, the SEC plays 16 games that are against non-conference opponents. Out of those 16 games, they're going to win 14 of those 16 or even more, right? Where where you're guaranteed that you're going to be 8-8 eight and eight in a 16-game league because you're going to play eight games and you're going to have six or you're going to have eight winners and eight losers. Right. So that's just a fact. So that just that differential alone in terms of win loss is one part of it. Then it's about timing. It's about the, the SEC's wisdom in recognizing that they were going to take advantage of that fourth uh, non-conference game. And not only were they not going to, uh, were they going to play a fourth non-conference game, but they're going to strategically locate that fourth non-conference game in like week 10 of the season. So effectively they get a bye week. They're going to play the little sisters of the poor in week 10 that allows them to, you know, uh, not play some banged up starters and things like that, or play them briefly and then get them out of the game so that they can recover and be in a much better healthy position as they go into the stretch run of the season, including the playoff. And the big 10 didn't do that. Right. They instead chose to play that ninth conference game against a, an opponent who's going to have equal resources, equal uh, uh, you know monies to pay good quality coaches and have talent you know that's comparable to each other in a much more competitive environment. And it was just stupid for them to do that. Cool. Uh, I'm going to switch us into two Nebraska-related topics that kind of tie into okay. this. Um, cause this whole discussion about competitive advantage, right. It kind of ties into, uh, the change within the big 10 of not having divisions anymore, uh, because obviously, uh, Nebraska, uh, being in the East division, we, uh, didn't have to play as tough of competition. Um, you right. know, we, we, and it was the, we were the West, sorry, yes. the West. Yes. Um, being in the West, right. Like Michigan, Michigan state, Ohio state, Penn state, we're all on the other side, so we didn't have to play them as regularly, and now we don't have that same benefit anymore, right? We'll probably be, you know, cycling those sorts of teams in, you know, at least a few of them every year now, um, which I've seen a lot of Nebraska fans kind of say, you know, well, uh, you know, bring it on, you know, we're 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 ready for the challenge, you know, that if we can succeed under those circumstances, it will elevate our national prestige. Uh, but it also has the possibility of us, you know, uh, maybe playing some close games. But once again, like having a five and seven type season uh, where we had to play USC, Ohio State, Michigan, UCLA, you know, all in a row or something like that. Yep, I, I would agree with you that, yeah, climbing in the mountain for us to get back to being in the competitive elite is is made more difficult by the changes that have happened with the expansion and the loss of divisions. There's no doubt in, in, our, in my mind about that. We've had a decade, though, Alex, to, re, to right our ship and reestablish ourselves as one of the dominant teams of the Big Ten Conference, and we didn't do it. Right, We had our window, 
and it's closed and we didn't get it done. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's water under the bridge. Nothing you can do about it now. So we just need to recognize that we have that hill to climb and we just got to start climbing it. Now, the, the reality is, is that I think I, I, I think because the other schools, if they keep it the way it is, are going to also be facing these teams with very even frequency to us, where the previous schedules had a bunch of weird caveats that were driven to maximize the, the high eyeball matchups that the uh, television partners wanted or desired. Right. And that's why Nebraska kind of got screwed. If you look at it over the course of, you know, the uh, the years that we've been in the Big Ten, we've had to play some of those premier teams with greater frequency than many of the other teams in the West. And that has effectively influenced our final records, our position within the Western division of the conference in terms of standings. I mean, that, that, that has all worked against us because we did not step up and get our shit together. Right. Okay. That that's just the way it is. Right. And so we have to accept that and kind of move on from there. Yeah. Yeah. And like you say, that more even split of the teams will hopefully help us in regards to our old uh, Big Ten West rivals. What other small thing that uh, we forgot to mention during the Nebraska section, um, but uh, Matt Rule during this kind of summer uh, time has been. Uh, making the rounds of various coaching clinics and, you know, dinners and events and things like that and speaking opportunities and things like that. And, uh, you know, still coming off with that charisma that he's shown so far in his tenure as a coach. Um, and so we're getting good vibes there. Is that how you would summarize that? That's a great summary, Alex. And, you know, even the assistant coaches, you know, they he's really working them hard, right? The month of June which used to be a little bit of a slower month for the coaches has now become uh, an absolute sprint. Okay. And now July becomes the month because it becomes a quiet period where they, there's some limits on recruiting and things like that. And they get most of their, uh, their coaching, uh, their clinics and their camps and stuff all happen in June. So, but, but June is just crazy busy. So all those guys are having to work their tails off this entire month to try to get out there and evaluate talent and be present and be visible and, you know, make connections um, throughout the country with the remote camps, as well as the local camps. And Matt has done, a, I think a, just a tremendous job, but all those guys are going to be absolutely exhausted and spent by the end of June. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that, that's been what he said, right? You know, he was looking for coaches that were willing to work hard and he's uh, yep. sticking to that so far. <laughs> Yes, he has. So, and you know, he continues to say the right things. He continues to work really hard to be visible in the community. Uh, he's doing all the things you, you would hope your head coach would do in terms of a positive recognition for the university and for the program. Yeah. All right. Uh, now switching back to some big 10 talk. Uh, one other big piece of news that's happened since we last did a podcast is that uh, we have a new commissioner. Uh, Tony uh, Petiti was announced as the new commissioner. Uh, he was previously the COO of Major League Baseball, and he also has a pass as an executive at CBS and ABC in their sports divisions. I don't have a particular read on the guy, but he certainly has a good resume, it would seem. Um, and I know he's had to uh, dive right into some uh, contract negotiations, trying to finalize this big media deal uh, that Kevin Warren started but did not complete uh, before he left his office. So he's had to kind of dive right into it. It seems like. Yeah, he really has. He's had to. He's had to kind of finalize and put the final bows across the T's, dot the I's on this contract that was announced generically, but still had some details to be worked out. And, and it became apparent that that there were some conversations that needed to be had on both sides, both in terms of conversations with our media partners, as well as the, the membership of, of the Big Ten itself to understand what we had agreed to and what is uh, acceptable and what isn't in terms of uh, the control or the amount of control that our media partners have over the, you know, the days and times that people can play. Uh, historically, uh, one big issue has been historically 
you know, the, as we approached the late October and into November, um, uh, there were a number of Big Ten schools who who have not historically embraced nighttime games uh, because you know that's a period of time when often it starts to get darn right cold, um, and so you you know you don't want to do that to your fan base to make them come to to games where they're going to freeze their tushes off, right? But frankly, primetime games are are some of the most high value games from a media standpoint, right. so. There were some compromises that had never been done before that were agreed to in this contract, and yet the member institutions weren't fully informed and on board with it. So there's been a lot of fighting going on to say, hey, we, we don't want this and we refuse or whatever, but then that means the television partners have the right to say, well, then we're not going to give you as much money. Exactly. So, so there's there's a there's some wrangling going on there. And I don't know that we'll ever know the ultimate negative impact that that has because um, our previous commissioner, Warren uh, did not finish that off before he left. Right. Yep. I read all that as well. So hopefully uh, Tony can get that all sorted out for us without sacrificing too much uh, in the process. Well, and, and you, and you mentioned, I mean, he has his resume, suggests that he's very well connected within the media side of things. You know, he's not, he's not a past, you know, uh, athletic director, administrator type person. So he doesn't have a lot of history that way, but he certainly does from a media standpoint. And frankly, within your commissioner, you know, if he's savvy enough to understand the media side of things and, and have the relationships to, you know, have proper conversations, you know, that's an awful big feather to have in your cap in the commissioner role because he can lean on the individual athletic directors to give him the insight he needs on the student athlete. Well, speaking of that, I believe it's uh, Larry Scott, right? The commissioner in the PAC 12. Um, Yeah. He, uh, I don't think he was as good at that side of things and they've uh, been paying the price for a while now. That's correct. That's correct. Yep. Um, and speaking of the Pac-12, um, obviously they've been in, in the news a lot. Uh, we've talked about the whole con- conference situation there on past episodes, you know, kind of waiting to see is the Big Ten going to scoop some teams up from the Pac-12? Is it really going to break apart? Um, and the most recent update is that uh, the different teams have agreed on a performance-based uh, distribution, uh, so not to have all the money necessarily be divided up equally between all the teams, but to have it go to who's bringing in, you know, the, the eyeballs and who's performing well in terms of record and all that sort of stuff. Um, and they're aiming to finalize this contract in June. Uh, but the big caveat is, is that if the teams are not happy with the number the PAC 12 comes back with basically saying, this is what we're able to get the media partners to agree to, um, they're within their rights to basically refuse. Um, and if that happens, that's where the, uh, the dominoes could really start falling. So that's what everyone's kind of waiting for now. It seems like. Yeah, I think that's true. I think a lot of these institutions are, are saying, you know, we're keeping our options open and we're, we're not completely, uh, you know, in the boat, so to speak with the PAC 12, because, you know, and, and, and here's the thing, ultimately, I don't know how long-term the uneven distribution of revenue based on, like you say, performance criteria will ever lead to a stable environment for a conference. Because how is a, a lesser performing school ever supposed to climb an already difficult mountain if they're now added to that burden of, you know, whatever deficiencies they have and, and you know, uh, unique challenges that they have as an institution, they now have to also overcome a significant financial differential between them and the, the conference elite, so to speak. It just seems like that will lead to a spiral and, and, a, diff- and a separation between the haves and the have-nots within that conference that will lead to that conference imploding anyway. Right. Which is, uh, it didn't fully implode, but you saw that play out with the big 12, right? Because Texas wanted to bring in more money themselves because they had the eyeballs and they were bringing in a lot of money themselves. Um, and teams like Nebraska and Colorado, uh, weren't on board with that plan. Right. 
Exactly. And because Texas was always trying to carve out, you know, this premier spot for themselves, and then they would bring along their, their, their buddy, Oklahoma. And so they got Oklahoma to agree to it as well. And then the, the rest of the institutions were beholden to those two premier institutions. And what did they end up doing anyway? Leaving the conference. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, they left anyway. So all these sacrifices that the, the Kansas, the Kansas states, the Oklahoma states of the world have made over the years in terms of, you know, voting um, um, histories within the Big 12. And uh, what did that, you know, all to accommodate the, the Texas uh, and Oklahoma's of the conference. And that still wasn't enough. And ultimately, those two left anyway. And I think that's what would happen to the Pac-12. What's kind of funny is of some of the teams that have left the Big 12, um, even though we've sucked uh, in terms of uh, you know performance on the football field, uh, I think Nebraska is feeling pretty good in the fact that we made it in the Big 10 and the Big 10 is doing so well financially. Whereas Colorado, there's a lot of speculation that they've been in talks with the Big 12 about going back to that conference if the Pac-12 does fall apart. And then you have someone like Texas A&M who left to go to the SEC and like to get away from Texas. And then Texas followed them into uh, the conference a few years later anyways. Um, So from that perspective, I think we've done pretty well. I would totally agree that I think uh, the the biggest thing with Nebraska is we've underperformed since being in the Big Ten in terms of where our major sports uh, programs have performed, uh, we we have not risen to the challenge. We have not done the things that we needed to do. And and again, part of that is leadership, right? Uh, we have not had the athletic directors and the head coaches in football, basketball, and baseball that would lead you to um, success. And as a result, we've wallowed in mediocrity that whole time. And we're just lucky that even in that set of circumstances, we still find ourselves in in really good financial um, condition uh, because we are a member of the Big Ten. Yeah. And uh, not to mention just the Big Ten, uh, but in terms, you know, uh, although we can question some of our past leadership in terms of their con- their decisions in terms of hirings, right, of coaches uh, and certain things like that. Um, They have been pretty good at pinching pennies uh, where it's needed and keeping the athletic department from going into debt. Uh, You shared with with me an interesting article going over um, some of the top public uh, FBS uh, universities uh, in terms of their debt. And you have some teams like uh, Michigan, pretty high up there, Ohio State, Alabama, uh, University of California, very high. Uh, whereas Nebraska uh, is the only uh, public FBS school with no subsidy from the school and no debt from their athletic department. Exactly. It, it, it's really remarkable that, especially given the fact that Nebraska has had to basically process through a number of head football coaches. And anytime you make a transition from one new staff, to, uh, uh, you know, old staff to a new staff in a, on a college football staff, I mean, you're paying a lot of people to walk away and not not work for you anymore, right? And even in light of those mistakes that we've made in terms of some of those hires that didn't work out, we still find ourselves not only uh, with no athletic department debt, but we've continued to to not only not take subsidies from the greater uh, school, we have provided money to the tune of 10 million dollars or more per year to the academic side so we're actually giving money to it and we're the only school that can claim that right to that level yeah yeah that's pretty amazing given the fact that we have sucked on the field (laughs) and that that's a huge statement to number one the brand that nebraska had built prior to this run of mediocrity um and um um, and just the loyalty of the fan base. And it goes beyond football. Obviously, football's the kingpin, but it's the fact that Nebraska fans, uh, you know, end up uh, representing and, and putting themselves in the higher end of, of attendance figures for areas that we've never been good at, like men's basketball and women's basketball and, uh, you know, our baseball program, all very, very uh, well-attended 
sports programs. Hell, even our uh, wrestling team and our, our our gymnastics programs and things like that are way above uh, average standards for attendance um, to all these events. So it's it just gets back to the passion that Nebraska fans have for their uh, university and for their sports program. Right. And I suppose someone's uh, snarky comment might be, well, that's because there's nothing else to do in Nebraska. Uh, But at the same time, you know, you've got plenty of uh, more rural states, rural universities, you know, that have good uh, sports programs and stuff like that. And they haven't done as well as us. So it goes to show that there's something special about Nebraska. Absolutely. When when you look at, you know, premier teams, let's, 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 I'm going to pick two, uh, Ohio State, one of our fellow Big Ten universities, and Alabama, who's probably been one of the most successful programs of recent years in the major sports, I'll say. Not their, not necessarily their whole collective program, although it's very good, uh, but they just don't have the number of athletic teams that, say, a Stanford or a Texas offers. But uh, Ohio State and Alabama both have over $230 million of debt within their athletic programs. And you know what? Nebraska has no debt and we're opening what will be the premier, you know, athletic support facility in the country this fall with the go big project opening up this fall. Um, And we will have the newest and best and brightest bells and whistles of anybody in the country uh, as that, facility opens and it's opening with us having zero debt. Right. Uh, so we've managed ourselves very, very well and invested And in these other programs, Alabama, heck, OU, even Texas, Texas has over $200 million in debt. Right. And I want to mention that because it's not like, you know, uh, Nebraska skimped on, you know, like upgrades to uh, Memorial Stadium, uh, building new facilities for other sports. And like you said, the right. new uh, big training facility for football and everything right. else. Um, we have a newer basketball arena. Uh, we have the premier volleyball arena in the world at Bob Devaney Sports Center. I mean, that is the pinnacle of volleyball arenas in the whole freaking world. Right. Because like that article that you linked me to talked about like an arms race within facilities and stadiums and things like that. Um, So how do you think that uh, Nebraska has managed to remain competitive there? You know, maybe we're not the very tippity top, but we're in the conversation. um, Right. And not gone into debt, whereas all these other facilities, I guess, have or not the facilities, but the universities have felt the need to one up their rivals and spend big bucks to try to attract talent. Right. Well, I, I think that generally speaking, Nebraska has uh, done a great job with uh, with their contract process, right? Their contract management, um, uh, their construction costs, things of that nature, because Nebraska is a right to work state. Um, you know, it costs a lot less to build something big in Nebraska as compared to, say, the state of Michigan, where we live, where it is. It is a unionized history uh, in this state. And so when somebody tries to build something, and uh, there's a, a, a recent example, uh, Michigan did some upgrades to Michigan Stadium, and they spent $400 million or some stupid amount of money to make some upgrades to their football stadium that you know were nice, but collectively didn't really dramatically change the look or or whatever of it to just enhance the amenities of the stadium and it and it costs an enormous amount of money and nebraska was able to build what will be one of the best um you know uh sports support or athlete support uh locations in the entire country and we spent you know half that amount of money now why is that there's a lot of reasons for that but one of them is the cost that we're paying to have those things constructed. And in addition, we don't have the layers of administration like some of the other institutions do. Um, so there's been some efficiencies there as well. Um, so uh, it's just been a good, wise use of the resources that they are given um, along with a fan base that is very supportive. Very good. All right. Um, now we do have uh, some NIL talk uh, that we had on our docket, but should we save that for next podcast? 
I think we should. Yep. There's just, again, there's so much stuff. And that's the one tie-in I would say to this last topic about athletic department debt and NIL. NIL is, is dramatically changing the game in how people, so our timing couldn't be better in terms of getting major investments into um, our athletic support facilities and the bells and whistles, right? The arms race, if you will. We're fairly well positioned as we go into the new era that includes NIL because NIL, it's not as, it, it, it's not a complete zero sum game, but it's not like you can just snap your fingers and all the NIL money is additional money. Th- that NIL money is to some degree, and I'm going to say it's a large degree, the same donors that would otherwise be donating to the university for facilities improvements. So it, the, they're shifting that money from one support area to another. And so it's going to be harder and harder for schools going forward to um, raise the money they need to build facilities. Right. Because those are the same donors they're going after that are throwing a bunch of money at NIL. Right. Unless these, uh, you know, Congress steps in or the NCAA and you know, really changes the rules from how they work now. Uh, which might shift that paradigm. But for the time being, I totally agree with you. Uh, that's what the reality of it is. Yeah. And so what are these schools going to do who find them? I mean, it just blows me away that Ohio State, Alabama, any SEC or Big Ten school that, that's on that list that's, you know, $150 million or more in debt. I mean, the University of Illinois has $300 million in debt. You've been getting paid Big Ten you know, um, media rights money for a decade. How in the heck are you $300 million in debt? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's just amazing to me. It's just, it's, there's, there's mismanagement. Yes, it's definitely. It's just crazy. Administration, like you said, bureaucracy. I'm sure that's a good chunk of it right yeah. there. Yeah, M- Michigan's $263 million. Right, very true. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely something we can talk to Brian about maybe on a future podcast. There you go. That's right. All right. So thank you all out there for listening to this episode. Our next podcast will be a a big one, 150. So we'll be coming to you guys with something cool for that one. Uh, Obviously, we'll keep our eye on the Pac-12 situation, right? If that uh, implodes on itself, uh, we'll definitely do a podcast to talk about that breaking news and uh, see how things develop with NIL and us getting into fall practice here in a few months. So there's a lot to look forward to. There is. And what we'll certainly have on a future podcast, uh, another uh, kind of sidebar into the Nebraska volleyball program as it embarks on a pursuit of a potential world record for attendance at a, at a volleyball match in the football stadium this, this fall. Yes, which you will be attending. Which I will be attending. And maybe your sister, because she's now very excited to go. Oh, good, <laughs> good. All right. Well, if you all out there enjoyed listening to this episode, you can reach out to us at huskerpeat 13 at gmail.com. You can also follow us on uh, Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can subscribe to us there, leave a comment, a rating. We always love hearing from the fans. We can read your stuff out on the air. So thank you all for listening, and thank you, Dad, for joining me for this episode. And until next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red. Go Big Red.